Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Xbell. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Rani Piputri of NNIP, a Netherlands-based insurance company. In our conversation, Rani and I speak about her past in various alternative data-related positions in Europe and about some of the ways in which she has been seeking alpha using alternative data at NNIP, her current employer. Yeah, correct. So um, um, that was uh, indeed uh, around 20 years ago. I was part of uh, Agon Asset Management, and he was an asset manager. So it was not a it was not a hedge fund. And then uh, with a couple of colleagues at that time, we decided to sp- to spin off and uh, start an, uh, our own hedge fund, and that was Seymour Capital. Was born in 2008, 2009. I and, see. Um, were you doing were you doing hedge fundy type things at Aegon, which which kind of made the spinning off make sense? So you'd have, actually have the the freedom and the flexibility to really explore and not be kind of constrained by all the regulation that Aegon would 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 have to undergo as such a large firm. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And there were actually more uh, more things at play at that time. Uh, so it was not the only decision that you know we want to be separated and we want to pursue more alpha generating strategies. But there are also some. Uh, you know, corporate drivers at that at that time, Egon would like to do an alpha beta separation in their in their equity management, basically putting the core investment in equities as to just exposure to equity markets, and it wants to have a separate entities that can run the the the, the alpha part, the portable alpha, as it were. So that was um, that was the main idea, and uh, with 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 some colleagues, we started this Seymour Capital. It was a, a hedge fund. Uh, so we did have less constraints, yeah. Sorry, less constraints, absolutely. But this is also we're talking December two thousand and eight. I mean, the world is crashing around your ears. Did you yes. did you did you feel there was an opportunity in that? Well, it's that was we didn't time it to be that way because uh, you know the the one thing that I also learned uh, in starting up Seymour is actually there's so so much there's a lot of things that you have to do even just to get a proper licenses to, to, uh, uh, by the regulators and to set things up. And, you know, the Netherlands is, you know, we are in continental Europe. We do not have the Anglo-Saxon um, type of uh, labor agreement. So setting that up takes a lot of time. So the fact that the financial crisis happens while we were preparing for this for this launch was quite a, quite a, quite a scare, but... Wow. You know, so, what, so you made the decision before... Before Lehman, before yes. not not before Best Earns, was it? So things were things were things were tipping, but they hadn't collapsed. Things were tipping, but they hadn't collapsed. Uh, the quant cake, a uh, quant quake. I always have difficulty saying this quant quake because it sounds like quant cake. In two thousand seven, where all uh, where many systematic strategies uh, crumbled down, that was in two thousand seven, and uh, back then we were still in the process of setting up Seymour. Um, yeah, so officially we were launched. January 1st, 2009. But yeah, so we had Lehman situation in 2008. Um, so how was how was um, creating a hedge fund in that in that surroundings? Was it was it a world of opportunity or was it was it pretty pretty hairy and scary? 
strangely, when you set your mind into something, when you're determined to do something, uh, all kind of things that happen in the world seem to be just, you know, something that makes your journey a bit more exciting, but it didn't really change the, the direction we wanted to go. So uh, maybe it was, uh, with hindsight, maybe it seems a bit oblivious and uh, uh, or just blind optimism at that time, but uh, we decided to, uh, to just push through and uh, we thought that the underlying of the markets are still the same. The way we want to invest is still the same. And this is something that will, that have survived many years in the past and it will survive in the future. So it was just uh, yeah. a bit of uh, annoyance, but <laughs> nothing more than that. Okay. Um, and you were based in The Hague. I mean, wh were you the only hedge fund in The Hague? Are, are there many? I'm, I'm not familiar. Are there many hedge funds in that, in that part of the world? Yeah, actually, there are not that many. Um, at that time, we were the second largest hedge fund in the in the Netherlands. Uh, at the height, we we have around uh, 700, 800 uh, million US dollar in assets. Uh, mm. But yeah, so it is uh, it is not the kind of you know it's not the there are not that many hedge funds back then. Uh, the largest one was a CTA. And there are many of there are many smaller smaller hedge funds, but it's it's not well known mm. for the Netherlands. Um, to have, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and what was the and what was the what was the strategy? What kind of thing were you doing at Seymour Capital? At that time, we were running uh, equity market neutral long short strategy. Uh, the focus was in Europe because uh, we saw that there's actually really the sweet spot where you can still extract a lot of alpha because US market is quite uh, efficient, you know, a lot of players there and uh, it's, 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 it's more homogeneous than Europe. In Europe, you still have different languages, different uh, regulations between countries. And uh, that is where you can, you know, still get good alpha out of it. And the fact that we've been in the Netherlands for a long time give us an advantage of uh, dealing with this kind of heterogeneity uh, in the market. Okay, cool. So let's get then to London, September 2017. You join a company called Aspect Capital, um, which is, um, and you and you began to be exposed to alternative data. Um, can can you tell me about that? Yeah, interestingly, uh, Aspect Capital is a uh, is a CTA, um, so they trade mostly on on uh, pricing information on different kind of derivatives. And I was hired there to actually take to, to look after uh, the equity strategies. And what does sorry, what does CTA stand for? Uh, CTA Commodity Trading Advisors. So Got these it. are companies that trade derivatives and uh, futures, and uh, they use mostly technical analysis. They look at uh, uh, pricing informations. Uh, whereas from the equity side, you look at information that is related to the companies that you invest in, such as dividend policies and share buyback and that kind of things. Mm. So that was the first, uh, the first realization that something as simple as dividend yields, which is the, the basic thing for equity investors, for, uh, for a CTA investor, it can be seen as uh, an alternative data because these are the kind of things that they don't normally look at. So actually the concept of alternative data is a bit, uh, you know, it really depends on where you come from. And, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. If it's if it's if it's new for you, then it's alternative data, even if it's boring for for the person who does it all the time. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was kind of interesting. Um, and I um um. And you and you obviously were joining this derivatives world from the the equities world. So you 
so from your perspective, dividend yields was was old hat. You know, it was it was kind of you know basic stuff. But yeah. you found that being an expert in that made you a, a you know an interesting commodity to a to a derivatives fund. Yeah, yes. The, the, at that time, uh, Aspec would like to diversify uh, its uh, investment strategies, so also including um, equity strategies, and this was uh, the reason uh, uh, why I joined. And uh, and this is also uh, at Aspec, I got the introduction to alternative data providers, and uh, uh, you could imagine that alternative data providers would approach hedge funds type institutions to. To uh, you know, to pitch for their data because hedge funds tend to be more uh, tend to be less constrained in using information and uh, and, and, and formulating uh, strategies because hedge funds really hedge funds job is to 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 generate a safe return. You know, it's being hedge and it generates alpha. Whereas a normal asset manager would typically you know sell um, mutual funds or uh, strategies that just give you exposure to the asset class not necessarily the, the, the alpha sure so what kind of what types of alternative data were was uh was aspect and were you being exposed to at that time at aspect at that time uh there was still no uh, real framework as to the alternative data so uh, uh we come across a couple actually just one or two kind of uh not necessarily a provider but more of a platform where you could look at alternative data in a more systematic way because you know alternative data is really a huge area all kind of data there is new or there is unusual there is niche uh, there is, is is you know clumped together into this alternative data and and as investors we would like to have a bit of an idea for example you know what is it really that the data measures what is the frequencies what is the uh, the length of the history that the data uh, captures and all kind of things. And at that time, there were only two uh, platforms that enables us to do that. So we were really looking into it. And um, it was really in the early stage because one of it, uh, at that time, we were looking at Eagle Alpha and um, uh, we were also looking at Noi Data. New Data, well, yeah. The Noi Data is actually, it came later. So the first one that we come across was uh, Eagle Alpha. And it was just a place where it was almost at that time. So again, this was uh, five years ago. So this is very outdated by now. Um, it was just a collection of uh, all kind of data, uh, new data. So for us, it gave uh, it gave us the first glimpse of how how broad and unstructured the, this field is. The universe was. But so yeah. they they're very much kind of. Uh, I'd, I'd see them as kind of introducers, these companies. Yes. So, so they are an opportunity for you to see, as you say, the whole alternative data world and then build up direct relationships with the providers that you found via new data. I mean, new data, for example, calls itself a, a, an alternative data scout. Um, yes. So it's there to spot. And then you say, okay, this, this, this company that I met at the new data event looks very interesting um, I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, contact it directly. And then, and then you have a direct relationship. So, uh, so those were, so those were, were great for discovery. Did you find yourself then, um, uh, building relationships with partic particular providers? And, and if so, was there a particular kind of sector area of alternative data, which, which you found more, more attractive? Yeah. At that time, um, when I was in London and looking into this, uh, uh data platform, we also got introduced 
introduced to uh, several data providers. Uh, again, at that time, it was very unstructured. It was very ad hoc. Someone knows someone and someone got invited because they think this might be interesting for the other one. So there is no uh, uh, standardization whatsoever. So at Aspect, we met a couple of these uh, data providers just because they happened to know um, someone at Aspects and, uh, and we thought it might be interesting to, to talk to. And uh, this kind of data were very, um, how do you call it? Uh, this is not the kind of data that you can get access easily. So even if you think about, oh, this data might be useful for me, you wouldn't know who would have that kind of data. Are you talking about, um, so the difficulty in um, the fact that it's unstructured and so the difficulty in managing it, or are you talking about the kind of the cleaning and the entity mapping or uh, which, which aspects of the, of the, of the challenges of alternative data are we, are we talking about here? So the challenges are actually, uh, the challenges started even before uh, cleaning the data and so on, because um, uh, first of all, as investors, you would rather get the idea yourself. So you think that, ah, I need to be able to uh, be able to call the sectors more timely. What kind of information would I need to do that? What, um, what would I, what would help me in making better better forecast of sector allocation, for example. And then you can start dreaming of the kind of data that you would need, and then you would look for uh, data providers that can do that for you. Or on the other side, uh, you just bump into uh, uh, data providers and uh, through interaction with them, you get ideas on how to use their data for your, invest, for your investment strategy. So um, that first part is still very un, how do you call it? It is, uh, uh, I don't think there is any common practice in, in that. Uh, if anything, now with the, the alternative data becoming a bigger part of our investment landscape that most of the time they will pitch to you that they have a, a unique, a special data that can be useful for your investment strategy. And as investors, you have to kind of figure out, okay, um, is there any value really in the data? Can I really use that in my investment strategy? Do you, do you have any do you have any examples, or perhaps no names examples of of when how this how this happened? You know, for example, you had an idea, you worked out what kind of data you needed to uh, to 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 you know to to confirm or deny that theory or or build that strategy or whatever, um, and then you went out looking and you found the right data set, or you found it hard to find the right data set. Have you got a kind of specific specific example in mind? Yeah, we actually have an experience like that uh, in the recent years at NNIP where uh, we had an idea to build an investment strategy that is uh, uh, that can pick up signals from the behavior in the markets and the behavior of other participants in the market. So this relates very closely with sentiment data. Mm -hmm. And uh, we happen to know a couple of uh, sentiment data providers out there. And uh, some of them are quite developed. And... Uh, uh, we decided to look closer, uh, more closely to one provider who has been in this field for some years. And um, and so they have their data that which they sell to, to investors. But when um, we talked to them, we actually expressed our interest in, in having uh, a slightly different kind of data. And uh, so we worked with them. So we ran a pilot uh, study with them that they will scout the kind of data that we uh, would like and process it in their own um, 
NLP and uh, machine learning uh, process to extract uh, to extract sentiments from the uh, from textual data. But the way they extract it, we kind of combine that with with the way we design the strategy. So. Was this um, was this um, was this uh, the sentiment analysis around perhaps retail investors maybe what they're saying in message boards that kind of that kind of other investors in the market was that what you were going for? Yes, exactly. So those are uh, kind of new phenomenons uh, because in the past the retail investor, at least in some part of the world, they weren't they were not the main driver of uh, of uh, of the stock markets. But in the recent years, in the past, uh, at least. Last year, we already saw the situation with uh, with Robinhood and GameStop. Um, uh, such uh, sentiments among retail investors can give you insights of uh, of the dynamic in the markets that can you know where you can actually extract ex- extra information. So uh, we work with this data provider to really look into uh, the sentiments driven by. Well, we call it authors by authors in, uh, in in newspaper, in social media outlets, even in Twitter and other kind of platform. And uh, we really look at the individuals who actually uh, uh, write this this these articles uh, because we would like to be able to kind of assign the origin, the source of this um, of this sentiment. So and so, you're trying to cl- you're trying to classify the um, the the kind of authors in, let's say, I mean, are we talking Reddit message boards? Are we talking kind of GameStop style situations and trying to work out who are the influential people saying, you know, you should you should um, you know you should buy GameStop, whatever, for example, um, yeah. in order to in order to judge how how influential they are and and how likely people are to follow their advice. Yeah, exactly. So our our initial thought was actually inspired by the work of Philip Tetlock around super forecasters. I'm not mm. sure if you're familiar with that, but very familiar. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we would like to see whether there are, there's a financial super forecasters. So basically, people out there they don't have to be professionals, but the ones who can actually give some uh, uh, the ones that have some predictive value towards um, uh, uh, movements in the in. in markets or stocks um, in, a, in a more consistent way. And you can imagine that this is a very tricky exercise because um, a writer on newspaper, obviously, if you look at Financial Times, those are real individuals. They are, you know, they are a permanent writer of the, mag- of the newspaper. But as soon as you go to Twitter, you have to deal with uh, account names that um, yeah, just made up and change and and all sorts. Um, this is fascinating. So, um, so Philip Tetlock's super forecaster idea was essentially that um, his his view is that that the best forecasters are not necessarily the people with the biggest reputations or the people who write columns in newspapers. You know, who who are who are well known. The best forecasters are ones who can be proven essentially by their by their accuracy over time and, and getting big forecasts right um and it is so he created the good judgment project which was essentially um a, a project to 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 discover who these people were and what kind of people they were and and, and the, the people they discovered were you know um, army veterans and and you know uh, loss adjusters and people the most random people all over all over america i think it was all perhaps all over the world um and so what you're trying to do is almost the same thing you're you're using perhaps um you're using the modern ability of sentiment analysis and tracking what people are saying online to actually and then you're you're trying to map that to the 
returns that actually were 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 visible in the market afterwards after they said look buy you know such and such a stock because it's going to go up and then it did go up um and then so you're then saying right so this guy or girl has been right uh, a number of times so that is either they know someone something or they're very um you know they're just very good forecasters and so we should we can we can kind of build a sustainable strategy around around them once we've identified them yes yes exactly so uh we set out with a very simple question are there financial support forecasters out there so exactly doing what you just uh, explained and um and and during the process we actually allow all kind of insights to to come into our field so for example there are people who would write all the time about about a company like apple let's just say but in in the process of writing that article about apple this person also would refer to the sector or refer to a, a competitor or a supply chain a, a supplier of apple and what they said about those those you know second uh, a derivative of the subject can actually provide more uh, insight to the the subject uh, the, to the subject at hand. Um, so that's what we what we um, also was uh, discovering is that uh, someone who keeps talking about any particular stocks can, is actually more predictive or has more predict predictive value to look at the subsector in to in 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 aggregates. So, um, so we've we've kind of get we've got ahead of ourselves because we've moved you on to your current firm without introducing it. So you moved from um, Aspect Capital back to the Netherlands. Um, you uh, you missed you you missed all the flat land, I think. Um, I missed and the windmills and the, uh, you the missed canals. The windmills, yes. Exactly. So you missed the Netherlands and and moved back in September 2018 to work for NN Investment Partners, NNIP, as you've as you've touched on. Could you just introduce NNIP and and kind of where they fit into the to the big picture? Yeah, so NNAP, NN Investment Partners, is the asset management arm of NN Group. Um, it's the largest uh, insurance company in the Netherlands. And uh, as an asset manager, we manage uh, the captive assets of the insurance company as well as third-party assets. So in total, we have about 300 billion of assets across all asset classes. Um, yeah, so it's uh, ranging from equities, uh, commodities, fixed income, and uh, even illiquid assets such as uh, private debts and infrastructure. Nice. And so you've moved. So you've and you're you're now the head of automated intelligence investing. What does that mean? Yeah. So automated intelligence investing is a team that runs systematic strategies, to put it uh, very simply. And uh, there is a, a deliberate move not to call us a quantitative team or a, 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 a you know, quant investor because, um, yeah, well, in the world nowadays, you know, I started my career as, as a quant. And uh, uh, in the course of 20 years, you see the world is, is merging in a way. You know, the fundamental investor and the quantitative investors, they basically do the same thing and they start looking at the same kind of data. And... They use different kind of tools, but uh, it's it's just the way and the order of processing information. But uh, uh, the quant investors starts becoming, you can call it somewhat uh, becoming more disc more fundamental by the uh, availability of this alternative data, uh, and the fundamental investors start becoming more and more systematic because also they see this data can help them making. Uh, faster decision. So that was the, the whole idea, uh, automated intelligence. 
that we can automate certain processes. For sure, it makes sense. And what kind of like is the what how what what percentage of the total of of NNIP would be would be kind of the automated intelligence part? Um, NNIP is you know it's actually more known to be uh, more fundamental investors rather than systematic or quantitative. But that's that's exactly the whole idea of ha- of having this team to actually bridge that gap and moving to uh, next generation. Diversify. Of, yeah, they were diversifying, and and because we also believe, you know, um, uh, that systematic strategies they also evolve and adapt, and we are now at the at the dawn of uh, next generation of systematic strategies. You know, um, I mentioned earlier about the 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 quant quake in 2007, where we had uh, a lot of strategies uh, experiencing massive loss, and that was because of crowding. Everybody is following the same strategy, looking at the same data. So when one exits, then everybody got uh, got sucked into the same uh, spiral. Now, with alternative data, you actually create a very diversified landscape for both fundamental and systematic strategies because there are so many data to look at and you can win in different ways and different frequency different period of time so an nip for example is a more of a long-term investors rather than uh, aspect capital the cta that i work in london before but it doesn't mean that we don't use we both use alternative data but in a very different way yeah. So you see, or do you see? You, are you saying you see alternative data ushering in a new age for quantitative investing? Yes. Yes. And um, you know, um, when I mentioned about the asset under management of NNIP, you know, three hundred billion is a lot, and uh, NNIP is also, you know, it is not the, the the largest asset managers in the world, but it has a, 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 a quite a nice size. And when you invest in alternative data, you do need some. Um, resources for it. Alternative data is not cheap. It is actually quite expensive, especially if you look at the amount of alpha that you can generate from it. You need to have a large AUM to be able to, you know, even pay back the fee that you or the licenses that you um, that you have to pay for the data. So that was the benefit of of, uh, of being part of a somewhat larger organization because you can afford to explore and use alternative data. But um, but so uh, so we touched on a wonderful a wonderful use case in terms of the um, the sentiment analysis, which also feels very um, very kind of hot right now with with GameStop and everything else. Um, were there any other uses of alternative data that you've discovered at, at NNIP? Any other kind of great great things that you've hit upon? Well, it's um, uh, currently we are looking at uh, uh, alternative data on a healthcare space. Um, mm-hmm. This is uh, for us as a systematic investors quite a new area because uh, you try to find a systematic way of extracting data or extracting information from quite a specific and uh, domain-related uh, topics, right? So uh, looking at the kind of uh, prescription that doctors write and um, and uh, the kind of uh, drugs that people uh, get exposed to through through ads and that kind of things. It is still a very, very, um, very early stage for us. So I cannot even share any, any you know, data trials or Insights. any findings that yeah. we have that we have. But this is really an area that we see um, uh, can be beneficial, especially also the investment, the healthcare itself as a sector 
is a is a is a growing is a growing sector for the long term. You know, for the for the reason of uh, you know demographic changes that we all get older, which means the, we will get there will be more and more people needing medical uh, support, and uh, so we see this long term. Uh, outlook of the sector, and this sector is still also very um, uh, quite specific. You know, uh, in the past, when I cover this sector, we talk uh, with analysts from investment banks, and they used to be a doctor. You know, so they would know all kind of things, um, understand the anatomy by the the words of the muscle. You know, it's it's they're not necessarily investors, and uh, this is where I see alternative data can help uh, opening Demystify. up. Yeah. yeah, which would be very interesting. You know, no guarantee it will be a success, but definitely an no, area. No, for sure. There's another. There's another aspect. I had a company on the podcast previously, Leap Year, um, and one of the issues with healthcare, I believe specifically, has been the privacy issue. In that, there's a lot mm. of data, but a lot of the healthcare companies have been wary of of selling the data as a kind of supplemental, uh, cat, like form of, of of revenue because of the of the privacy issue and actually what leap year does and and my understanding is that they've had some success in that in the healthcare industry specifically is obfuscate data so they make it very hard to reverse engineer a particular you know data record or or, or person patient um yeah. who, who the data is talking about which is kind of which has the potential to really unleash the, the pharmaceuticals and kind of healthcare healthcare area to um uh you know to make it to make that data available. So I think there's a reason for why now in terms of data availability as well as as you say a kind of a reason for why you'd want to to get that data. Um, but yeah. but um so that's cool. So so that's so that's on the on the healthcare side. Broadly talking about alternative data in general, like and and you are a, obviously an alternative data buyer. Um, what can an alternative data provider do to make themselves more attractive to you? What can they do to their data? What's the best way to kind of get it in front of you? Um, any, 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 any thoughts and tips there? Um, the main thing that comes to mind is that uh, if we trust their credibility and their capabilities of extracting the data, because as investors, what we do not want to have is data that is already cleaned up, there is already somewhat um, uh, processed, that makes them more structured, uh, admittedly, but it will be more structured for all investors. And if this kind of data is available in the same way to all investors, then you know the likelihood that we can actually extract some something that gives us a, a, a step forward is is quite limited. So uh, a certain level of uh, I would call it like actually a service, you know, the, their ability to to customize the data. For a buyer like like us at an NFT, that would be highly appreciated. Um, so, so, like like the like the sentiment analysis provider you were talking about, who are able to, to provide a tailored service based on what you specifically requested and yes. deliver the data in a kind of format in a prepared way, which was only for you. And and so presumably you'd have a kind of you know a a, 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 a kind of specific contract with them. Um, yeah. And it wouldn't. They and part of it would be that they wouldn't sell the data like that to anyone else because it's what you've specifically asked for. Yes, exactly. And I can imagine that this can only work for for uh, alternative data providers that have a broader capabilities. Because you know, if they have to do this customization for every individual client that they have, it might be 
you know, it might be a lot of work. Um, so yeah, with sentiment analysis, you know, it is such a broad concept, so um, you can tailor it in, 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 in different ways and it is still a sentiment analysis. But imagine if you have a satellite data on uh, oil container on, on the oceans, you know, it's just, it is just is, right? The way um, uh, the data scope is quite limited. So I, would, I wouldn't know how such data providers would, would deal with this kind of, you know, desire or preference from a, a, a data buyer to get some customized data or service. It does suggest a certain size of data provider to do that. Um, because as you say, they would need to then have the in-house capability to do it. Would you be less minded towards a kind of small firm, which has kind of just come across this data set and is, and is kind of selling it in its rawest form? Are you, are you more minded towards the, the slightly larger players in the market who can, who can kind of cater to your services a bit more? Yeah, so in, for, for the kind of business as usual, uh, you know, we would consider uh, bigger names because also for a third party risk in a sense, uh, if, we, if we use the data for our investment strategy, we have to s somewhat s certain that this data provider will still exist in the next few years, because if not, you know, that can jeopardize the strategy and, uh, uh, and that is a very risky thing to do. On the other hand, if you come across a small alternative data provider that is very niche and very, um, Interesting, uh, what I see also in the alternative data landscape, you start seeing uh, companies being being taken over or being acquired, being uh, merged with other with other uh, firms. So I could imagine if there is a, 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 you know, a small-ish providers that are very good in what they're doing that, you know, it could be made part of um, of, uh, of the firm. I'm not saying that NNIP is doing that, although we do have certain level of partnership and very close collaboration with some alternative data providers on a smaller, they are smaller in scale, so more a startup thing, but it is, um, uh, it is also a possibility of uh, working together. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Rani, I think I think um, I think that's a really comprehensive view um, and a fascinating um, viewpoint from a from a Dutch perspective as well, particularly particularly because uh, because you know being being London based and 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 being based in Europe, then I'm always keen for more alternative d d data usage in Europe and kind of banging that drum. So really great to have to have the the largest insurance company in in, uh, in the Netherlands to be doing this. And 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 thank you so much for giving us an insight in, into into how it's being used. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. So, so thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. It's a, yeah, a topic that is definitely relevant and interesting and still growing in the future. And this is not, um, you know, this is a, 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 a movement that is undeniable. This is just going to be part of our lives. So um, I cannot imagine, uh, even though we are in continental Europe, I cannot imagine that this alternative data becomes um, smaller if anything, it becomes uh, mainstream and becomes part of our uh, regular investment practice. Mm -hmm.